Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. One of the main topics of conversation in recent months has been around energy costs and the wider cost of living issues we face. War in Eastern Europe, Russian sanctions and global supply issues have all contributed to a state of play where energy is no longer cheap and plentiful in the UK with bills at record levels this winter. Is this the future? Or with renewables and other forms of energy growing rapidly, can we expect a future of cheap energy independence? Joining us tonight to talk through all things energy are Sarah Merrick, Chief Executive of new clean energy ownership platform Ripple Energy. Hello, Sarah. Hi, no, hi. And George Hall, a longtime renewable energy expert, currently development manager for innovative energy producer Conrad Energy. Hello, George. Good evening, Matt. How are you? Yeah, so thank you both for joining us this evening. Energy, of course, is a big issue at the moment. We've been told recently that high energy prices are, are here to stay. You both work in sort of the new and innovative parts of the energy sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your companies? What Ripple does is, you know, wind and solar are the UK's cheapest sources of electricity. And what we enable individual households and businesses to do is to collectively own large scale wind farms, large scale solar parks, and then get the green, low cost, stable price electricity that they generate, supply to their home or business via the grid. So like I own a tiny bit of our first wind farm, Greg Rather, which is in South Wales. So I get my bit of the generation supplied to my home um, each month and I get savings applied to my bill automatically as a result so you can just kind of own little bits of lots of different big wind farms and you get cheaper electricity because with energy scale is so important and it's so much cheaper to own a little bit of a big wind farm or a big solar park rather than owning a little bit of solar on on, on your roof so yeah so we enable everyone to own their own source of clean low-cost electricity. Um, Conrad, Energy, we're a, we call ourselves a, a vertically integrated uh, independent power producer, so an IPP. Um, so we own, operate, develop, build and keep um, generational and uh, training at trading energy assets. So we're built up around flexible generation, so uh, small independent gas peaking plants that kind of fill the holes around the energy market. So when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine and the small gas localised energy plants come online and pick up pick up the demand but over the last uh, 18 months two years we've uh, diversified out into the battery world and uh, solar world so we have a, a supply license uh, we've got a trading desk and so we buy own operate and trade energy thank you so much for setting the scene for us uh, but would you be able to explain a little bit about why the UK is in the energy position that it's in and why we currently have the highest energy prices in Europe Electricity prices are high partly because you know it was, it was start kicked off in 2021 with you know supply chain constraints um, and the growth of a sort of post COVID recovery in in Asia that started to push gas prices up and then obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine then made them spike even higher in spring um, 2022. In the UK electricity prices are very heavily dominated by the gas price so even though you know we get loads of our electricity from renewables the price of that power is mostly traded at the gas price because the gas is the marginal plant that's needed to meet that last little bit of um, demand on the system. So even though renewables are really cheap, prices across the board are really high because gas prices are really high. So we've seen prices start to come down over the last few weeks, um, but they're still kind of three times the level that they were in kind of normal time. So 
yes yeah, so, so, so consumers are paying a lot of money for their electricity as well as a lot of money for their for their gas because the gas and the electricity market in the uk and also in large parts of europe as well are kind of inextricably linked given the structures of the um, markets as they stand at the moment if our market share went primarily to renewable sources of energy that energy price would be linked to that instead and theoretically we'd have much cheaper electricity not as the way the market uh, is currently yeah, structured, because <laughs> at the moment it, it, it's that last little bit of electricity that's needed to satisfy demand. So even if you had in, in lots, if you had loads of renewables in lots of time periods, you would still have gas being the sort of price setter. So, so there's work going on at the moment to try and sort of decouple those two, the, the two markets. Obviously, what, what Ripple does is our members, so the people that own the wind farms, they get their electricity from the wind farm at its operating cost, which is really, really low and doesn't go up. When the gas price goes up so high prices they get a high bill but also they get a massive saving applied to that bill so it means that they get stable prices for the wind farms 25 year lifetime but that's only for for ripple members if you don't own your own source of clean power then yeah you're, you're paying um, really high prices like everyone else i have to say i agree with what sarah's saying the price of energy is definitely peaked and i think is definitely on the fall if you look at uh, the energy mix at the moment as we're live on at the moment you're kind of 40 percent of our energy market is gas as we sit here now there's 30 percent uh, wind power on our electrical market and 10 percent nuclear so we've definitely seen it come full fall back off which is great news to consumers and i think especially the, the forward prices into this summer and next winter are looking much more encouraging and we've seen the government in the last couple of days announce that the sort of the help for businesses is not going to materialise. And a lot of that is because there perhaps isn't the need because the longevity of the prices increases is perhaps not going to materialise. But we are part of a global market. So as Sarah says, uh, factors out in the, the Far East have affected us. The fact that the French nuclear fleets of, of um, nuclear reactors have, got, have gone down recently but they've managed to come back online now. So that's what we're seeing at the moment. We're seeing imports across the interconnectors coming into the UK. So that's all helping with those prices starting to fall. And um, what we're seeing now is what we think is going to be more of a long-term marketplace where, where prices tend to fluctuate either through the day or through the seasons. So we've seen you know prices a couple of days ago were actually ne negative on the wholesale market. Recently, they've been they've been up to sort of 200 pounds a megawatt hour. So it's all part of that, that having that right mix of technologies to deliver the power at the right time. Much has been made of the need for Britain's energy independence in the last year or so. Uh, obviously, that is because of the danger in the way we currently import our energy and the supply side of our energy market. But what else about making energy here would make mean it's cheaper for the British consumer to consume energy produced in the UK, if it's renewable, for example? So I think you have, you know, if, 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 if we can work to sort of decouple the gas and the electricity market, which isn't easy, but, but, but you know, they, 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 they can... How would you go that. about that process, Sarah? So there are different ways that are being looked at at the moment. So one would be um, more kind of long-term contracts. So, so lots of like offshore wind farms in particular are covered by these things called contracts for difference. And that kind of stabilises costs um, because they, they agree to sort of pay certain level if the price is below that they get the difference if it's above they have to pay money back to, to, to the government essentially so overall that kind of stabilizes prices that, that's sort of one option and then other options are yeah kind of having just different structures for for, for the price and that could then um, feed through to 
you know, get 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 more of wind and solar's low price feeding through to to um to consumers. But you know, in general, the more renewables you have on the market, the more, as sort of George said, the more lower price periods you get in the market. Obviously, on average, that then brings prices down. So in in times where you know things are very constrained, prices go up because we're relying on on, on gas a lot. When there's mo- much more um availability of wind and solar in a you know a half hour period that pushes the price down as well so it's not as if you know the the current market does work quite well but but when you've got a lot of gas it does mean that you've got um high gas prices when when the gas price is high as well but you know in general if you've got a market that is very very dominated by renewables and homegrown renewables that also makes the whole economy more, more, more resilient because it's not susceptible to fossil fuel price spikes like we've seen at the moment so you know as well as it being a great to go net zero for, for an emissions perspective, from an economic perspective, it also protects the economy from fossil fuel prices, a price spikes like we've seen over the last couple of years, like we saw in the 70s as well. So, so there are loads and loads of reasons to want to have homegrown, low cost um, electricity, like most of which would come from renewables. George, does that make it electricity and energy cheaper for the consumer or just for the supplier? It's going to make it cheaper for, for both, to be honest, because we are in a competitive marketplace. Those prices will feed feed their way through to, to the consumer. I uh, completely agree with what Sarah says. The UK has some great attributes. We have the uh, most successful wind farm in the world of the islands of, of Shetland at the moment. And we, we surprisingly have a reasonable amount of solar. So we are very much set to be able to take advantage of those natural environmental factors to take ourselves as off-grid as possible. And we're seeing that with the, with the government's, the Scottish projects recently, there's up to, up to another 50 gigawatts of uh, wind, uh, offshore wind being announced in, in the last 12 months. One of those is Celtic wind off the sort of south, but in the, in the Bristol Channel, which is very exciting. So offshore wind, even onshore wind, we're, he- we're, we're hearing a lot of uh, noise from the government that they might be changing the planning rules. And Grand Mount Solar can produce, can produce electricity at very cheap rates, very predictably, and will enable our grid, our national grid to be very uh, carbon neutral in, in, in the long run, linked with a significant amount of storage. Subjects of my broadband, I'm going to come in with a few questions now, both. You, you both, you know, talked us through the renewable side of things. That really is going to be the future, isn't it? You know, a much larger, sustainable, renewable industry, which is focused on wind, We've got floating wind farms developing in Wales. We've got, George, you mentioned the Bristol Channel. I think there's Owl and Moor. Um, there's more things going on in Scotland, but also solar, also, you know, tidal coming in. We really are going to see renewables boom for the rest of this century, really, do you think? Exactly. So, you know, at, at the moment we've got, with wind and solar, it's around kind of 30% of the UK's power by, by 2030, which was only like seven years away. We're going to be getting up to... 60 plus percent wind so that's you know more than doubling the amount of wind on on the grid plus loads of solar and so so you know by then it will be very much a renewables led market with gas picking up the the gaps in between but we'll also need you know as as obviously you know, you know when it's going to be night and it's going to be day. You don't necessarily know um, when the wind's going to be blowing. So you're going to need to have, alongside all that, as George was saying, you know, loads more storage, but also loads more flexible consumption so that consumers can start to shift their consumption to periods when 
there is more electricity available and moving away from periods where the system might be a little bit tighter and we need to reduce consumption to to, to match as well but but yeah the uk is moving really really quickly towards a renewables dominated electricity market which is exactly what we need to be doing well george you know you work in the storage uh sector as well you you're working on some really innovative battery schemes like can you talk us through a little bit about how storage can work into this kind of whole area and help the energy sector yeah absolutely well it's predicted that we're going to need around 15 gigawatts of uh, storage capacity in the uk and we're we're presently at about one gigawatt in the uk and we're building a similar amount this year so we're we're really early stages in terms of this marketplace at the moment so batteries tend to do two things first things first is they provide frequency response. So without getting too technical into the, the electrical, our grid should be at 50 Hertz. Um, national grid is contracted to supply it between 49.7 and 50.3 Hertz. So batteries are brilliant at picking up those changes and those very, very quick changes in, in the frequency. So there's a number of products out there we, that our batteries work in dynamic containment for national grid. And so in the short term, they'll be very much concentrated around providing services for national grid. But in the longer term, the only way we can really store energy in this country at the moment is pumping water uphill in, in North Wales and releasing it at, at, at the appropriate time. So batteries will, will enable to be filled, will import the energy from the grid or from a renewable source into the battery at you know, either the middle of the night or middle of the day when the sun's shining at, at, a, at a cheaper rate. It'll then be sold back to the grid during peak times, which tends to be about this time of night whenever he comes home. Uh, plugs the car in, starts cooking supper, or first thing in the morning when everybody's you know having shower and having breakfast. So we have these sort of peaks and troughs within our demand. So the batteries will enable us to shift the energy around in, in a time frame, because it, unlike gas, it's difficult to store electricity. It's got to be used when it's produced. So batteries at the moment is one of the only ways we we we, we can do that. And so the challenges we face is to be able to do this in a in an economically viable place. To connect it to the grid in a timely manner but also to be able to store enough of it to enable us to you know to to produce enough energy to get us through these uh, these peaks and troughs wales historically has very poor grid infrastructure what kind of work do you think needs to be done in order to ensure that our renewables boom really thrives because it's all well and good generating all this amazing renewable energy but there's limits to it no no matter how good the battery storage technology is until you actually can export that energy back into the grid and then back into houses you're absolutely right matt uh national grid have got some infrastructure issues especially in south wales uh there's some upgrade projects ongoing at the moment but we're not likely to see those coming online until at least 2028 2030 so that's really going to inhibit the the growth of renewables in south wales um until those sorts of dates so any application made to the grid at the moment will come back with a with a with a date that is you know 2030 plus at the moment. Uh, and North Wales is probably worse. Uh, we're seeing connection dates in North Wales of 2034, 2035, to be able to connect grid scale projects, whether that's solar, whether that's battery, whether that's wind. So there needs to be a massive investment within the grid infrastructure, both in terms of capital outlay, but also planning. Um, to be able to allow us to decarbonise our network. And that's, that, that is the biggest thing that's holding back our industry at the moment. If, if I can, you know, none of this is new. It's not, it's been known for years and years that, you know, Scotland's got fantastic wind resource and 
it's, we're going to need grid to get all this renewables down to the centres of consumption in southern England. Likewise, Wales has got fantastic resource. We're going to need grid to get all of that into, um, you know, near, near, nearer to, to sources of consumption. So this has been known for years and years, and there's been so much opportunity wasted in terms of getting the grid built where it needs to be built. And you know, it is crazy that we're seeing such long connection dates because ultimately there's no point. You, I mean, there's no point in building a wind farm or a bit of storage or, or solar if you can't get it connected to the grid. So this is really constraining deployment of storage and new renewables now because you can't get connected to the grid. So you just can't build the project, which means the UK isn't getting as much green low cost power as, as it, it could do if there was grid there ready to take it. Just on the basis of what you know, you said about centres of consumption there. I know for a fact that lots of people in Wales and Scotland are very concerned that their natural resources are being sort of extracted out of those countries without necessarily the energy or the benefits going back to either Wales or Scotland. What do you say to those local people who are concerned that, you know, their, their countries are being used to generate this energy for the benefit of people in England? But, you know, what Ripple wants to do and what we are doing is enabling individual households and businesses to be able to own these wind farms and solar parks that, that are getting built. So what we can do is enable people who live local to the project to get kind of first dibs on becoming an owner of it. So they might get two weeks ahead of everyone else so they can own the wind farm that they drive by on the way to work or the solar farm down the road from them and they get cheaper electricity as a result and they get first priority on doing that but you know I think separate to Ripple it is you know in a renewables world you can't relocate resources like the wind is you know that the, 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 there are so much better wind resources in Scotland there's great wind resources in Wales as well you know England is less windy um, England is more sunny so you're getting you know more solar projects in England but the reality of living in a society is you have to put the wind farms and the solar parks where they are going to be best and that's why we have a national grid to, to, to connect everything but but yeah there is a lot of work going on to enable and ensure that people living near these projects can get more of the benefits directly and you know and whether or not that's kind of you know there's sort of local opera you know there's construction jobs there's operation and maintenance jobs as well you know there are significant benefits that that the local economy can derive from from having these projects as well as you know ripple wants to absolutely um really supercharge that by enabling local communities to be able to own it ahead of everyone else in the country as well so so, so yeah so it, it is an issue um but there are lots of there's, there's there's lots of work going on at the moment to try and ensure that local communities can get kind of first priority on the fantastic opportunities that you get from um, owning these resources as well. George, did you have anything to add on that point? No, the only quick thing I would say is that electricity always follows the path of least resistance. So if you've got assets close by, then you're going to be benefiting from those assets. So um, don't quite follow the argument that these are going to be generated in the extremities and used in the cities in England. It's going to be Use, use locally. It's the same reason why you put solar panels on your roof, because you're going to save yourself electricity in the house. So. As well as the national grid, there's a lot of talk around local grids. And last week, I think it was a policy which was announced in England, was to have all uh, new homes to have solar on from 2025. You know, George, you're in the solar industry. You know, that's got to be a good policy, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's been a policy we've been crying out for for, for 10, 12 years and, you know, all, all new builds, whether it's commercial, industrial or domestic houses, should have solar on the on the roofs. It's an absolute no-brainer, always has been, completely agree. 
end of, full stop. Get on with it. It certainly, it certainly seems that it's coming that way in England. And um, but one of the things, you know, housing, a domestic housing stock is one of the biggest issues around energy. And, you know, certainly uh, one of the things in Wales we're still doing is putting gas boilers in to, to new homes. So we're embedding that kind of gas infrastructure for at least another 10, 20 years. Sarah, have you got any thoughts on, you know, how we can address that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was going to be addressed like eight, 10 years ago, we were going to have zero carbon homes. So every new every new house was going to be um, zero carbon as standard, but that was scrapped before it was even introduced. So, that, you know, there's just been, you know, eight, 10 years of inaction on um, domestic low carbon performance, you know, and as a result, all those people that are buying these new houses over the last 15 months have been paying way more in electricity bills than they would have done had they have, you know, had a heat pump or had solar on, on their, or if, they, if they'd had solar um, on their roof. So, you know, the argument that, oh, this is just reducing the cost of um, new house building is so short-termist. And you know, there's been tens of thousands of people buying these houses that haven't been protected from from rising prices. And they've been really hit over the last 15 years which so, so so yeah you of course you should just have solar on um new homes as standard it is such a no-brainer and it should have been happening as george said for the last eight ten years and george i know you've worked on some really big kind of outside the domestic where high energy use companies are investing in solar farms on site so the one i've always been impressed with is the bentley motors three megawatt scheme which you uh, project managed but what do you think of what Scott uh, France have announced recently around all car parks over, I think it's 60 car parks spaces uh, to be covered in solar? Do you think we should uh, be going down that route? Absolutely. It's a, it's a brilliant idea. I mean, if you're looking at, uh, at the wider picture, it's the decarbonisation of what we're doing at the moment, whether that's decarbonisation of heat, whether that's decarbonisation of electricity. But one of the biggest challenges we face is the decarbonisation of transport. And so we are going to see, and we've seen, we're seeing it at the moment, the vast number of EV, EVs being brought onto the market at the moment. The Tesla 3 is the most popular car being sold on in the UK at the moment. So where are these cars going to be going to be charged? How are we going to cope with this massive amount of extra consumption on the network? And the solution, I think, is quite simple. You've got to be charging these cars either at home or at work. And the, 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 the companies and the big, the big sites where people work have the infrastructure to be able to cope with the electrical off-takers. So as we proved at, um, at Bentley, putting solar on, on top of a car park is financially viable. It's easy to do. It uses land that is not overly well utilised. It's easily serviced, uh, maintained, and provides a direct relationship between gen generation being produced on the, on the roof and um, put straight into either the electric cars or into the into the factory producing the cars a very very successful project you know i think those kind of laws they make it just very clear what people have to do and they reduce the risk of shall we do this shall we not do this and and the uncertainty it's like if you know you're building a new car park and of course you then put solar on top of it it kind of it puts everyone on the same level playing field every all, all car park manufacturers know that's what they have to do that's the deal and it kind of actually reduces uncertainty in the market and it just makes it easy for those investments to happen if it's like oh shall we shan't we what's the risk of doing that it just it complicates things and you know provided that it's not a stupid thing that people are being required to do then just making it like the standard and the thing that you have to do actually um 
can reduce investor uncertainty and make it more easy um, for these things to happen. Yeah, I, I think that's some of the terminology which is missing in our industry. It's about that certainty, which uh, a lot of, a lot of the those who want to invest or are responsible for things just don't have. So one of the other renewable areas which is is very pertinent to Wales is around tidal power. You know, we've got a very high-profile uh, scheme in Swansea Bay, which was uh, which was happening. Then it's not happening now. It's currently happening again, in line with a, a battery uh, a battery park. Have either of you got any kind of thoughts on whether where we are with that? I think tidal will eventually happen, but how do you think that will come about? I've, I've worked in the industry for well since two thousand, and you know, tidal has always been one of these technologies that is kind of about to to come through and, and wave technology as well but I think there's a number of different issues that, that it faces so with, with tidal in particular you know the UK has got fantastic tidal resource but actually if you look at the world's resource of tidal you know a big chunk of it is in the UK which means that when you're looking at you know manufacturing tidal um, generators it's not necessarily the case that, you know if you crack the UK you've got this huge global market to go for whereas with wind and with solar there's huge global resource to aim for if you if you develop like the winning technology, um, whereas you haven't got that with, with with tidal. But also, I think in terms of getting costs down, it's really hard for technologies to get their costs down until it's standardised. So you know, at the moment, you can't really draw what a wave generator looks like or what a tidal generator looks like. There's lots of different kind of competing technologies, and until you sort of settle on right, this is what. A wave generator looks like or this is what a tidal generator looks like you're not going to get the kind of learning by doing by making the same widget for that generator over and over and over again whereas you know with a tur- wind turbine you know what a wind turbine looks like it's got three blades and you can you know build better towers you can build better generators but it's kind of working on the same thing whereas you haven't got that volume with wave and tidal i mean that said you know wave and tidal can do um great things but it's going to be a lot harder for costs to come down you know the cost of solar has just plummeted over the last 20 30 years same with the cost of wind like offshore wind over the last 10 15 years because you've had manufacturers manufacturing very similar things over and over again factories can just do you know slight evolutions of technology to to just eke out better and better um, efficiencies whereas you haven't got that standardization and it's really hard for costs to come down without that standardization so yeah the you know the, the, the Swansea Lagoon you know it, it could deliver loads of power but but that power is likely to be expensive because it is kind of all bespoke projects it's not just like right we're going to get one of those tidal generators off the shelf you can't do that it's all bespoke technology which makes it very um tends to make it very expensive that's not necessarily to say that you know you shouldn't do it but it just means that the cost of doing it um is a lot more than would be for technologies that are a lot more mature and they have got that kind of standardized and they're right the way down their their learning curve I tend to agree, actually, Kerry. Solar's been around for 40 years. Wind's been around for a similar amount. We've known about tidal and wave energy for similar sort of timeframes. Two of those industries have developed massively in that timeframe, and one has pretty much stood still, and I think that will probably see its way out. I think there might be one or two odd outlier projects, but as a mainstream renewable technology, I wouldn't be investing in it. Sorry. Well, one energy source that is... uh... Even older than that is is nuclear. Wales seems set to potentially have a, a new nuclear power station on Nismorn, as well as the potential for small modular reactors uh, in places like Trosvenev. 
Do you see nuclear as part of our future energy mix? Although I'm not personally a big fan of it, I think it will have to be part of the mix. I think these small uh, Rolls-Royce uh, reactors, I think, will become part of that mix to provide that base load. Um, so that they, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, um, these nuclear reactors will be there uh, filling, filling, filling the voids. I suspect that government will look to promote them, whether they are funded using the same model as Hinkley Points or whether their further private investment will have to wait and see. But I would think in the next four or five years, these small nuclear reactors will, will start coming, on, coming to um, fruition far more. The development of them will gather pace. And I think this spike in the energy price over the last 18 months will push their development forward. Sarah, you mentioned the stroke price of, of tidal being high, but that's nothing compared to the cost of building a nuclear power plant. Why do you think we're so accepting of the costs of nuclear, but not of the costs of other, maybe not so well-proven energy sources? I mean, I, I think you know, nuclear is a proven source of, of power and Hinkley is incredibly expensive, but it's you know, once it's operating, it's going to be generating a hell of a lot of power as well. So, um, you know, and, and, and again, there's nuclear power stations operating across the world. So, so, so yeah, I, I, I think nuclear will be part of our um, long-term energy mix. It has been for the last 30, 40 years. And, and it just, you know, it sits there and does its thing. And, yeah, I mean, what, you know, I, I, I think there will be an issue around getting small uh, modular reactors planning consented because you know if it's hard to get a wind farm outside of town consented it's going to be really really hard to get a nuclear reactor outside of town consented um but you know that aside i think there you know there is going to be space in the market and i think you know it's, it's important to stress that you know we're going to need so much zero carbon power it's not like you know there's no magic bullet like oh yeah wind's going to do it all or solar's going to do it all we need a mix and yeah i think it would be it's entirely realistic for, for nuclear to be part of that mix really is nuclear good value for money at these you know the, the cost of building a plant is 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 very very large but does it still present good value for money well i mean i think in, in today's money the hinkley cfd is around 113 pounds a megawatt hour which you know obviously compared to wholesale prices over the last year that's quite a good deal compared to the cfd prices for offshore wind it's more than double what, what 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 the most recent offshore prices were so kind of got to put it in the mix they are very very expensive there's no getting away from that but you know you would hope i know this is the plan when hinkley was built that you know later ones will get get cheaper the idea with the small um, modular reactors is that you can do that standardization so you're building the same widget over and over again it's not a kind of bespoke project per you know reactor which basically most of our nuclear reactors were bespoke designs whereas the whole point in modular is that you can just build the same thing over and over again and that can bring the price down but yeah i, I would imagine consenting will be a massive massive you know problem in terms of you know how that technology can can be deployed so in in their evidence to the welsh first select committee i think over a year ago now westinghouse said that they you know in order to make this sort of more cost effective they'd like to see the sort of fleet effect of their uh, nuclear power plant designs is you end up seeing numerous power plants of essentially the same design across the country how likely do you think that would be and how long would that take to get this sort of base load of zero carbon energy through nuclear i don't think zero carbon is going to be fully 
nuclear is all part of a, a mix and, a, a, and a, a mix of technologies and, and nuclear's got its part to play within that, both the larger reactors like Sizewell and Hinkley, but also these smaller ones. And, and we know the time on these things is just, just takes such a long time. I mean, we know how long it takes to get a wind farm consented and built and connected to the grid. We're, we're talking six to eight years for those types of assets. So even a modular reactor with technology that's not yet proven or not yet produced is a long way into the future. And you're probably talking mid 2030s, but I think the desire there from, from both the Welsh government and from, from the UK government is, is, is to pursue these. And um, I think this is start of a sort of trickle down effect to uh, to get people thinking about nuclear and, and a way forward and security of supply. And we, we're, you know, we're talking to landowners, we're talking to businesses on a daily basis. Price was always the most important thing, then became carbon. And now actually security of supply is the most important thing to businesses and commercial leaders out there. Without electricity, we can't do anything. So going back to your previous point, it's a cost benefit analysis. It is expensive, but without it, the lights might start going out and we can't afford that. So in that front, it probably is decent, good, decent value. We're exploring a lot of the, the various energy technologies, uh, George, Sarah, and there's two really, which are often cited as the future uh, of energy. One is perhaps, you know, something which people are looking at now around hydrogen and how we can use that and whether that will be used as a transport fuel or replace gas in our boilers. And then a little bit further down the line, we're always told about fission energy. What do you see about those two kind of future energy mixes? Likely pipe dreams or something which, you know, it's worth doing the work on to see what does develop. In terms of hydrogen, I think, you know, in the last five years, hydrogen has gone from like a footnote to, to being like this, um, it's just got so much um, attention. It will have its place, but but the idea that you're going to have, you know, domestic home heating run on hydrogen or even hydrogen cars is not the way to go, I would argue. You know, I, I think you need to electrify things first. So, you know, obviously switch to electric cars, obviously switch to electric heat pumps and then power those with zero carbon electricity. I think hydrogen has probably got a place in terms of, you know, things that can't be electrified. So like, you know, maybe really heavy transport, some industrial processes, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I really struggle to see a time where, you know, people have got hydrogen boilers in in their homes it's you know the, the the work that's needed to do that the sort of critical mass you need to get a hydrogen grid it's just too much and, and the you know each time when you make hydrogen then when you use it again you've got these conversion efficiencies so, so by the time you you're heating your home with hydrogen you could have done it so much more efficiently and you know using with less wind energy than, than if you'd had had a heat pump but, but you know that said hydrogen is clearly going to be a part of our zero carbon future but I think you know it, it needs to be put into perspective in terms of its role and in, in terms of fission you hear stories in the press about how it's you know they've, they've made these amazing breakthroughs and then you know no no it, it, it is in the future but I, I did note a story today of a, a plant being looked at for Oxfordshire George any thoughts on either of those technologies uh, hydrogen, yeah, uh, Conrad's a massive supporter of hydrogen. So we have got, at the moment, we've got planning permission for three hydrogen plants. The first one is going to provide hydrogen into one of our uh, flexible generation plants. So it will be a 20% mix. So just a, a blended mix in, into, into the gas uh, plants. The second one will then be a replacement for a gas 
so it'll be a, a, a peaking plant, but uh, powered by hydrogen. And then our third, our third project is going to be producing hydrogen for an off-taker for a commercial shipping organisation. So we really do see hydrogen as part of that mix of decarbonisation. We do see it very much being used for heavy industries, for transport, like Sarah says, not for cars, possibly for lorries, um, but definitely for larger larger applications, uh, marine and um, maybe the rail network, hydrogen and work, and certainly in commercial and industrial uses. So Conrad are investing quite heavily in it. At the moment, it's certainly not a profitable place to be. And somebody described it to me like the solar industry in 2008. And I have to tend to agree with that. You know, we are very much at embryonic stage of an industry, but you've got to be in it to learn a few lessons to develop that knowledge and um, we're really quite excited by hydrogen and uh, see it as a big part of our energy mix going, going forward. So just quickly to clarify, your hydrogen production for your schemes are from your renewable assets. That's how you create the hydrogen, is it? So what we will do is the ones we've got at the moment will be, uh, we will be sleeving the energy from our renewable sources to the, to the hydrogen sources. So it won't be the hydrogen electrolyzers won't be on the same site as the uh, as the renewable source. They will be uh, located next door to the offtaker. In our political discourse on the pod, you know Wales being a net energy exporter features quite a lot. It's uh, a lot of the things we talk around is the Welsh economy, how Wales and independent Wales could fund itself. But the reality is, a lot of Welsh energy comes from imported Qatari gas. And a lot of our renewables is uh, funded by Westminster feed-in tariffs. Have you got any thoughts on the Welsh energy mix going forward? How, what technologies might be there which we haven't perhaps looked at or how they'd be funded? So I was part of the Welsh Government's um, uh, renewables deep dive. And, and, and a lot of that was looking at how can you know, the benefits of deployment of renewables in Wales lead to sort of maximum benefit for, for, for the people of Wales. And, you know, as part of that, one thing that came out, you know, as well as, you know, we need to upgrade the grid and there, there, was, there was loads and loads of um, findings. But, um, uh, you know, what one was about ownership and by enabling new renewable projects that are going to get built in Wales to have an option for people in Wales to own them so that the people in Wales get directly the, the cheap electricity that they produce was was, was um, discussed as part of that. And, and the Welsh Government is very keen on requiring or encouraging new projects to have an element of local ownership. So I think, you know, it's not necessarily the case that, um, you know, you might have a project that is owned by a European utility, but, you know, that, that, that project can still have partly, it, it can be owned in part by people in Wales and, and sort of beyond as well so that they, they can get their bit of the wind farm um, wind farms electricity um, at the low operating cost. So, so there are lots of different things and there are lots of things being looked at as well. I think in terms of sort of new different technologies that there's no sort of technologies out there that um, I think we haven't talked about already on here. There's no sort of miracle technology that's sort of, you know, hiding behind the sofa or anything. But, 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 but yeah, it is... Um, there's a lot of work going on to look at how we can get more of the benefits of Wales's energy deployment um, retained in Wales, you know, and, and then that sort of goes from whether it's sort of industrial or industry located in Wales to, you know, individual consumers as well. And part of that, I suppose, Sarah, is the, is the call and the suggestion of a, a state energy company will be set up in Wales, which will build on our own, build an own 
energy provision in Wales. So trying to keep those benefits, which we touched on earlier, because a number of uh, Welsh sites are owned by uh, state-owned energy companies from overseas. You know, it, do you think that's that's a good good approach, or do you think that might frighten off other private investment in the Welsh renewable sector? I think that there, there, there's always a risk of yeah the, the, those sorts of actions frightening in, in international investors but I think you know for, in the Welsh context you know the Welsh government and there are lots of you know there's state-owned forestry so there's a lot of resources that the Welsh government is kind of um if not directly in control of you know it, it's kind of um linked to it so and again going back to the point you know that there's just so much that's needed so I think if, if it was a risk that that was going to crowd out other investment, that, that would be a, a concern. But I think there's just so much that needs to be done. It's not the case that um, the Welsh government developer would 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 crowd out a, a, other investment. I think there's just so much that needs to be done that it's a case of, you know, all hands to the deck doing as much as, as is possible, as, as, as quickly as possible. So, you know, ultimately it's, you know, it, it will be one part of the market, but I don't, think certainly from what I've seen so far I don't think it will be like the majority of the market you know they're talking about doing a few projects but 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 that you know that's a few of many different projects that will be happening over the next you know 5 10 15 years but if I was to offer the Welsh government a bit of advice Kerry I think it would be to focus around the grid because if you can unlock the grid you'll then unlock the investment the benefit the decarbonisation that goes up goes alongside it so if the Welsh government could work alongside national grid to speed up the the infrastructure improvements the transformer upgrades the overhead lines that need to be replaced um that's the quickest and the best way to to get the benefits to to local people um it'll enable businesses to put renewable generation behind the grid it'll enable prices to fall and the um, security of supply the sustainability increase so that's that's got to be the place to win so, George, thanks for that. You kind of summarised a, a good future point for Wales on the grid. Sarah, have you got anything? What would be your wish list to ask UK or Welsh government to do to address energy going forward? Yeah, I think top of the list would be um, massive rollout of um, energy efficient, domestic energy efficiency measures. So it's really boring, but it's really, really needed. And um, just using less electricity and you know, less energy to heat your home saves people money. They could have saved so much more money had it been done um, three or four years ago. But that is absolutely not to say that it, you know, we, we've missed the boat. We need to do it. And yeah, it's not very exciting, but it's really, really needed. I just wanted to say thank you so much to both of you for coming on the pod this evening. If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on Twitter? Sarah? Uh, I'm at Speak Sarah Speak on the Twitter. Wonderful. George? I don't do social media very wise very wise indeed but if you do want to follow Herife on social media you can go to at Herife pod on twitter and facebook uh, or go to our website www.walespolitics.com thank you again for coming on this evening sarah and george and thank you to our listeners thank you thanks very much thank you for listening to Herife. if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review